0: Luke 18, we'll start in verse um, 31. Um, this morning, I want to do some, something a little bit different. What we typically do in and what we have done in Luke is we've worked, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, we've worked all the way through, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, Uh, theme by theme. We've kind of plowed through it. And so what I'm going to do this morning is, because of what we have here in front of us, I'm going to take the passage and I'm going to explain it uh, briefly, and then I'm going to make a big application point slash rant at the end, all right? And that's what I'm going to do. So um, it's going to be a little bit different. And so because what I want to do, I want to show you what really holds this whole passage together and ultimately what really holds the all of Scripture together. And and so what I want to do, and my goal here today is when we leave here, I want us to grasp really what the Scriptures are about and why they are so very, very important for us as believers, all right? So can we do that this morning? Can we do that? Good, all right. So in chapter 18, this is what we've seen. Jesus... we have discovered that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He talks about it in chapter 17. You see him at the very end. He's telling his disciples that Jerusalem is near. What that means is literally this. The cross is near. Jesus knows that he is about to be crucified on his horrific, most brutal death. He knows that that has to happen. Uh, Scripture tells us that um, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So this is him worshiping God, being so obedient that he's willing to go to the cross. And so what you see is this zeroed, fixated focus on one event, one purpose. That's the cross, all right? So this is where his eyes are focused, to Jerusalem. And so here's, here's what we take, what takes place people began to ask him lots of questions. We see lots of different responses to that purpose. And so then we go into verse 31 through 34, and it's coming out of this idea of Jesus saying, the cross is near. All right, verse 31 says this. And after taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. There it is again. And everything that was written about the Son of Man By the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him on the third day, and he will rise. But they understood listen to this they understood none of these things. This saying was hid from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Two times, in Luke's gospel. We've seen this happen already, uh, specifically in chapter 9 of Luke. Uh, people were speculating on who John the baptizer is, and, or who Jesus is, and they're thinking, are you like John the baptizer? Are you him? And they're saying, no, no, you're, you must be one of the prophets of old. And so the people and the, the disciples, they, they had this heroic picture of Jesus, that he would be this big heroic figure who would come in and overthrow Rome on this white horse and a big sword comes in on a donkey, and they're going, uh-oh, that's not what we were looking for. And so what Jesus does is he shows them, even in these com- comments of, are you like one of these guys? Are you like one of these prophets? Are you one of these prophets? He says, he goes to Jerusalem. He says, I focus is on Jerusalem, on the cross. Uh, Jesus, in Luke 9, uh, verse 45, he heals this boy with an unclean spirit. And Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And interestingly enough, this is what he says in Luke 9, 45. It says, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. But here in Luke 18, it's even more specific when he talks about his death. And he gets more specific as the story continues with his disciples And and here's what happens. They say that he's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully uh, mistreated. He's going to be spit upon. Uh, They're going to kill him. On the third day, he will rise. And so he gets very, very specific. And ironically, the disciples' response is very similar in Luke Luke 9 and in Luke 18. It says the saying was hidden, hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what he was saying. Now, part of this was because they thought he was going to be this heroic figure. But there's another part that I'll mention at the very end here that I think is key, but just keep that noted that Christ is saying the end is near, the cross is coming, and they hid it from themselves. They didn't want it. Even in Luke 9, it says they were afraid to even ask. And so we're going to see why here in a moment, but, but let's jump down to verse 35. And he drew near to Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. He told them, Jesus of Nazareth had passing him by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, He asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So you have this blind man, and, and what Mark 10 says, that his name is Bartimaeus. Uh, Mark's gospel gives his name. And he's by the roadside, and he's sitting, and Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, has this crowd of people around him. And he is blown away by this crowd. He says, what's going on? And disciples tell him it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Jesus, the son of David. And when what you begin to see with this man with Bartimaeus, this blind person who's sitting on the side of the road, he just has immediate and extraordinary faith in who this Christ is, who this Jesus of Nazareth is, who this, as he would call, son of David is. And so we're going to look at how he was healed. First of all, it's very interesting. It's it's unique because he says, let me recover my sight So he's got some element of faith of, we can work this out together. I don't know what that even looks like, but Jesus says, because of your faith, you're healed. So he heals him, but we see this other element of faith based on the title and the name that he gives Jesus. He calls him Jesus, the son of David. And both times he mentions it, he says, have mercy on me. So he acknowledges Jesus as Jesus, the son of David, but he also realizes that Jesus is the one who can give him mercy and grace. He's got this powerful name that he honors and respects and honestly is afraid of in some way. Have mercy on me, Jesus, son of David. And this phrase is really what I think captures the level of faith that this man has because of what he calls him. Jesus, son of David. This is the only place this phrase is even used in Luke. Two times you see these genealogies in the Bible. And genealogies, if you're like me, you just you just skim over them. It's like, you know, it sounds like Star Wars or something. It's like, and the Kleons and you know, you're kind of confused because it's just all these crazy names that you can't pronounce. And if you're like me, you don't read very well already. Like, you're just very intimidated. But genealogies are extremely important. And what you see in like... um, Matthew's gospel, Matthew is talking to a Jewish audience. And so the most important thing that he's trying to show is Jesus, how he links to Abraham, because Abraham is like their boy, right? He's going to be the father of many nations. And so he links Jesus back to this Jewish icon, Abraham, that he's related to him, and it just blows their mind, right? And and so with Luke, he writes to a different audience. He's writing primarily to Gentiles, non-Jews, And they don't care about Abraham. They're interested in, he's connected to Adam, our first parents, the one who started all this mess. That's who Jesus is ultimately connected. So he does the genealogy all the way from Adam, all the way up to Jesus. But here's what's interesting about both genealogies, all right? Stay with me here. I know I'm geeking it out, but stay with me here, why this is so important. In both genealogies, if you look in Matthew 1, if you look in Luke 3, you're going to see something in smack dab in the middle of both genealogies. David. David. This great king Israel loved. The Gentiles would have known who he was. And it blows their mind on he belongs to this kingship. And it's a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 16 when Nathan tells David this. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So basically he's telling David, and this is God using uh, this prophet to speak directly to him, that's saying, Because you're the king, you're gonna give birth to the king of kings and the lord of lords. Your part of your lineage is gonna lead to this great. Great person, this great, great figure. And so he calls when Bartimaeus sees Jesus, he is, his faith is increased. Listen, based on what was written in the scriptures about Jesus. He recognizes and knows that Jesus is the one who can have mercy on him based on this idea of what Scripture says about him. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's linking it back to a genealogy, back to a phrase, back to an understanding, historical understanding of this man is powerful. This man is mighty. Only he can offer me this amount of mercy. That's pretty amazing stuff, is it not? Am I the only one excited about this in this room? All right, there it is. Was that Patrick? No, okay, you're fired. I'm just kidding. No, just joking. He's preaching next week, so I can't fire him this week. Um, Okay, so you have everything that was written about this Christ about the Son of David, this man acknowledges and identifies him in this way. But if you look up in the next part in verse 31, this is where I think it gets really interesting. Jump up back to 31. it says, "And after and taking the twelve, he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is what written about the Son of Man." by the prophets will be accomplished. It says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, if Jerusalem is near, Jesus is saying to his disciples, everything about the Old Testament is all about me. That's what he's saying. Everything in the Old Testament is about me who's standing right here in front of you All the things about my death, it's all written back there, and it's going to happen soon. So Jesus is saying, everything that's written has been about me. Could you imagine the weightiness of this? They they would have trusted the law. They would have trusted a lot of things. But him saying, every single thing is about me. Now, that, that should influence the way that you see the scriptures. Does it not? If every single thing that is written in the Old Testament is about Christ, that changes everything for us. Everything. And so, before I, here's my rant, all right? Before I became a believer, I had a weird understanding of the Bible, a very bizarre understanding. I thought that. because um, I grew up watching 80s horror movies. Um, I had older siblings, and I'd I get to stay up late. I would bribe them. I'd tell mom about that party if you don't let me watch this movie. And then I'd have like horrible nightmares. So I saw all the crazy like chainsaw stuff when I was a kid. That's why I'm I messed up now. Um, and so... One of the things, like, I saw movies like Lost Boys with Keetra Sullivan. I mean, I know you've seen the 24 version of Jack Bauer where he's a good guy. He was actually a horrible—I mean, in all the 80s movies, he's like a, the worst guy you could ever be. So he's this, like, scary vampire. And I thought, well, the Bible is one of those things that you, if you keep around your house— um, vampires won't harm you. Like that was my way of understanding the Bible, that this is like some kind of mystical spell book that will cast off vampires and, and bad things and witches and witchcraft and all this stuff. So if we just had a Bible around us, like vampires are just going to skip over our house, like it's the Passover or something. Like if I put this near the door, they're not going to bother me. So that was my understanding of the Bible. And, and, and part of it too was I, I, when I went to church, and, and this is not dogging just church, but this is dogging probably the churches that I went to. I did not hear them talk about it. So it was like more of in passing. Back when I used to read the Bible, this is what it said. And it was more, and then story after story, and oh, you need Jesus at the end. And I never heard anyone actually talk about it or wrestle with it. And Christians didn't seem to know a lot about it. So I thought for sure, this is just some kind of mystical, like magic spell book that keeps us from vampires. That was my way of understanding it. But after I became a believer, here's what happened. Uh, someone walked up to me and said, this is God's love letter to you. You need to know who he is. Read this. This will tell you everything you need to know about God. So I was like very, you know, I could barely read, but I was trying to figure it out. I was reading like big fat King James Bible with like gold lettering on, on the front my grandma gave me. And I was trying to read it and trying to figure it out. Who is God? What is, what's he about? And I was trying to understand it. And I remember asking my dad all these questions about God and who he was. And then, I don't know what happened, but somewhere I got kind of lost in the shuffle through discipleship, and I would say probably at poor discipleship, people came up to me and said stuff like this. This book right here has all of life's questions in it. If you have any question about life, this has all of the answers. Now, that sounds like a really nice thing to say, but it's a really dangerous thing to say to a 13 year old, all right? So I was like, everything about life is in the Bible. I was like in the index, like puberty, where is that in the back? You know, I was like trying to figure this out. And I was thinking, well, every single thing in life, like, and then I got lost in all the shuffle of really bad analogies telling me what the Bible was about. And it said things like this. This is your instruction manual. How many of you try to put together something without an instruction manual? You'll get lost, right? You need the instruction manual to manage through life, and this is your instruction manual. Don't live life without the instructions or basic instructions before leaving Earth. B-I-B-L-E, and there's whole songs about it, right? And so we try to build, like, you know, this whole idea, like, this is my instruction manual. This is my roadmap to life. The Bible's your roadmap to life. If you don't have a roadmap, you're gonna get lost. And and, and the more and more I tried to figure this thing out, the more and more I was like. Where's my instruction manual? Where's my thing that tells me about everything in life? The problem with that is the Bible cannot be a roadmap to life. It's got maps in it, like in the back, but it is not a roadmap to life. I mean, if you're looking at it like a roadmap to life, you will get lost, all right? You're going to get lost. And so here's why that is. The Bible did not tell me to marry Jessica. It doesn't have Jessica in it. It says Jesse, but that's about a tribe that started with a dude. So I know that God does not make me a married dude. So I didn't, it wasn't found that I was like, I'm supposed to marry Jessica now. The Bible did not tell me that, but did did not say go to Greenville and plant a church. No, the Bible told me to marry a believer who, a, a woman who loves Jesus. And I'm pretty sure that God made me attracted to her because she's a beautiful woman. He made her a beautiful woman. And so that's why we are married. Praise God, right? Praise God. But it wasn't because I read a passage and it came to life and said, that's who I need to marry. Wasn't that? Wasn't that? So it's not a roadmap to life. It didn't tell me to name my son Finn. It didn't tell me to name my son Gideon. I know Gideon's in the Bible. It didn't tell me to name him that. I have freedom to do that. So it's not this roadmap to life. It's not this instruction um, manual. And, And what really started to click for me was this. I remember just about five, six years ago, I was in a small group before I came and planted here. I'm sitting in a small group, and someone says, hey, guys, what's the Bible? What's the Bible? And somebody started saying, well, it's a roadmap to life. It's his story. Get it? His story, right? His story. And so it's a history book. Or, you know, you can't get through life without it. It answers all of life's questions. And I'm like, for once, growing up in church since 11 years old, the Sunday school answer would have been right here. Jesus. No one said Jesus. And I was going, something's wrong when we don't say Jesus, because what Jesus does to his disciples when he says that he's about to die is all of the Old Testament is about me. So when we start trying to frame it around, it's our roadmap to life, it's our way of success, it's our best life now, we end up not saying what Jesus says about it, which is, it's all about me. Amen? Amen. That's what he's saying here. It's all about me. So you say, "Well, well, I don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. And that's the beauty of the Old Testament. That's the beauty of the New Testament. That's the beauty of the Bible. He's throughout all of Scripture. So you have like things like what we call Christophanies, and I'll explain what that is. Jesus has always been. You have Jesus at creation. You see, in the beginning... Was God, and then you look at John 1, it says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it says in John 114 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so it 's showing us that Christ Jesus was there. In Genesis 1, when it says in the beginning, God, it's Him who created us, who framed us. And if you look at things like Colossians 1, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, it says that uh, all things were created for Him and by Him. Without Him, nothing was made. Christ in creation. You even look through all through the um, old testament he shows up in little cameos like he it shows that he walks with abraham he wrestles with jacob um when he tells like he shows up in a burning bush and he tells this guy moses who has a speech impediment to go up to the strongest leader in all of the world and tell him to let your people go moses says who am i supposed to tell him to do that he says tell him i am i am that will be the name of god when Jesus shows up in John, you know what he does? When the, the, the Pharisees are asking him, who do you think you are? He says, I am. He's saying, I'm God. So who was it in the burning bush? Who was it who talked and walked with Abraham? Christ. If you look in Daniel, you see three Hebrew boys who... He has to stand up to this wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, and they're asking him, everybody bow down. These three Hebrews really stand up, and he throws them into a fiery furnace. This wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, looks into this flaming hot fire. He says, I thought we threw three people in there. There looks like four. One looks like the sons of the gods. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus. You look at Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is sent out to be on mission, and he says, I see the Lord seated on the throne high and lifted up in his chain of his robe. And all these angels are glorifying him. he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees Christ. He sees Christ. We know that because John says, John 12 says, Jesus said, yeah, Isaiah saw me. Isaiah saw me. Yeah. If you look at phrases in the Bible in the Old Testament, it says, when it says the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's likely Jesus. Instead of an angel of the Lord, you see that phrase too. That's an angel, probably. But likely Jesus, when you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord. You see this in um, Abraham when God commands him to sacrifice his precious son. Sound familiar? His precious son. And take him up to this mountain and sacrifice him. It says, the angel of the Lord swooped down, stopped him. And then, by the way, he provided a, a sacrifice a lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. Sound familiar? Yep. To be a substitute. Then you have Old Testament figures that would foreshadow Jesus. Old Testament pictures that would foreshadow Jesus. You have a tabernacle, you have a sacrificial system, and you say, what's the purpose of Leviticus? Here's the answer. Christ. Christ is the answer. You have prophets, you have priests, you have kings, you have stories like David. David is not about you conquering the giants in your life, right? It's not about that. It's about God choosing a very unlikely candidate, one that no one would ever be to be a substitute before God's people that he would provide and be a substitute for, that he would be willing to stand in the place of. And that is a picture of Christ. So you have a picture of Jonah, who is an unjust, hateful prophet who stands in the way and he gets to Nineveh to proclaim the, the, that God is angry at them. They all repent. Jonah dies angry, is what we know about through Jonah. And Jesus says, This, oh, that story, yeah, that's about me. Like how Jonah was in the big fish for three days so that I will also be in the grave for three days, but I will resurrect. That whole story of Jonah was about me, but I'm just the true and better Jonah. I'm the true and better David. I'm the true and better Abraham. I'm the true and better Isaiah. I'm the true and better Moses. I'm the true and better everything, and it's all a picture of Christ. You have prophecies that step out. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. I'll just grab one verse in Isaiah 53. All of that is about Jesus. But I'll show you one verse that says this, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. Who could that be about? Only Christ. Psalm 110, it says that he will be a priest. will be a priest forever. Deuteronomy 18, it shows us that there will be a new prophet who's like Moses, but he's better. So it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the hero of every story. Everything that we see in all of scripture points to this one person. And ultimately, one event, Jerusalem, he's going to die, and he's going to raise from the grave in our place for our sins so that we can have eternal life. So that's different. If we try to personalize the Bible so much to where we say, it's all about me, and it's all about when I read it, to give me a better life, to make me more successful, to be me a happier person, to make me fight sin differently— that is different, is it not? When we look at it through the lenses of Christ, it changes. So it, doesn't, it becomes not about us or about what we must do. It's about Christ and what Christ has done. So it changes everything. In the Old Testament, you have Genesis 3.15. It tells us, after the fall of man happens, God tells Adam, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is the first proclamation of good news. And it's all about Jesus. They didn't know that. They didn't hear, oh, that means cross. That means he's going to crush this Satan and his wrath and his anger toward, or, or, or his um, wickedness toward sin. He's not going to do that. He's, but we didn't understand this, but they had this prophecy of a some type of redemption. And from that, you have picture after picture. You have prophecy after prophecy. You have small little glimpses of what this Christ would be. You have a tabernacle. You have a sacrificial system. You have lambs and sacrifices. You have substitutes. You see God putting in, in the human history, random heroes that we don't understand. It's all a picture about Christ. In the Gospels, we see the prophecies come clear, and we see Jesus, he is born of a virgin, just like Isaiah says. He does live a perfect, sinless life, just like the prophet said he would do. He does die on the cross, just like all the prophets said that he would do. He does rise in the grave, conquering the penalty of Satan's sin and death, just like... Everything in scripture said it would do. That is why we have all the Old Testament to point to this event. Then you have an Acts. Jesus ascends to heaven. He tells his disciples that you are going to have a helper, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. And once you do that, you'll be able to make uh, much of me through the church. And it will be Jesus' church. Throughout the epistles, we see how we are to live as Jesus' church. And in Revelation, we see this beautiful picture that it's about Jesus and his coming, and how he's going to take his church, and we are going to worship him forever and ever in glory. Amen. And so this is all about Jesus. The Bible's written 1,500 years span time, three different continents, three different languages, 66 different books, 40 different authors, all to proclaim one name that can save anyone who believes and repents believes only in the gospel that he's the only way. All of these books, to the one purpose, show us one person. So here's the thing. The disciples, they didn't get it because they hadn't put it all together because God had not fully revealed it to them because they hadn't seen the prophecies come true yet because Jesus hasn't died and rose from the grave yet. But with us, the cross has happened. And so, If you're a believer, it's crucial that you see the Bible this way. If you start to make it about you, you are going to miss the purpose of why we have the Bible. And because we believe this book is all about Jesus, that is why we go through books of the Bible. Because we're like, you know what? If we do that, you can't miss him. You can't miss him. If I do topical things of seven ways to get you out of financial debt, you will miss him. You're going to miss him because you're going to hear little glimpses and little verses taken way out of context to show you, we just need money. Instead of just asking, we just need money. By the way, we just need money. Um, Instead of just asking, we, we try to hide it behind this veneer of long sermon series. We don't make anybody mad. No. I don't don't care about making people mad as much as I do care about making sure you know Christ. So when we go through books like Luke, and and man, we track through it hardcore. It's because what Jesus says, everything that's written in the Old Testament is about me. Everything that we see after him is about him. It's all pointing to Christ. And So we don't want you to miss Christ. We want your affections to be deeply stirred for Christ. It bothers me when people say, oh, this, that's just heady. That's just, that's just too heady. You're trying to confuse people with all this, you know, trying to go through books of the Bible. There's going to be things in there that confuse people. I know, right? But we're all working hard to strive toward who Christ is. I mean, it's hard work sometimes to know somebody, right? Is it not hard work to know your wife, to know your co-workers? You ever have that conversation that you just meet that person that's just difficult to figure out? It's just hard, I mean, you have to ask certain questions, ask, well, I can't talk about this, you know? And it's hard work. We work really hard at those relationships, but sometimes we just think that knowing Christ should be incredibly easy. Parts of it are profoundly easy and childlike, but there are other parts that are very difficult, and we ask you to go there with us because we want you to know who Christ is. We want your affections to be always longing for what Christ has done. So, if you pick up your Bible and you want to read it, the first thing you ask yourself is this, how does this apply to my life? Or how can this fix this problem that's going on in my marriage or this problem that's going on with my sin or this problem that's going on in my finances? You're asking the wrong question. That is a good question to ask, but it is not the first question that you ask. The first question that you ask is this, how can I take this and learn about Jesus? What truth does this show me that is only true because of what Jesus Christ has done for me? And then you say, how does this apply to my life? Then you say, how does this deal with things that are going on in my life? Then. And only then. But the Bible is not about you. It's about God and the person of Christ. So my prayer is this, that we would not be, as the disciples were, afraid of asking these questions, but we would ask God and plead with him, God, would you reveal your son to me more profoundly than I have ever seen him before. And that is what we ask when we open this. That is what we strive for when we come to church, when we come to life groups, when we go to Gospel You, we're asking God, would you reveal yourself to me more profoundly than you ever have before? Let's ask God for that this morning.